Would you join me in prayer? Father, there is none like you. There is none beside you. There is none before you and none after you, as we read this morning. We pray even now that you would reach out your mighty arm, O Lord, that you would show your strength in the sight of not only Grace Covenant Church, the gathered church this morning, and churches gathered all across this region and this state and this nation and even the globe today, we're asking not just that you would show your strength here in our humble gathering, but inside of all the nations. Lord, that you would spread your salvation on the hearts of the multitudes that they may believe and repent and turn to you. We're asking, God, that you might be found by those who seek you not. And through the surprising condescension of your grace, show yourself to those who are not even inquiring after you. Help us not to be provoked to anger, Lord, but awakened to follow your path. Lord, you have stooped low to offer salvation to humanity. Help us to step up to do the same. We bless you. Speak to us, O Lord, through your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number one, where we just were, the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, there's a pew Bible in front of you if you're needing that. And uh, we'd love for you to, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. Acts 1.8, it's one of those great commission texts that we read. And I'm going to preach to that text for about half of the sermon. I'm going to get there, and then when I get there, we'll handle some things. It'll be really obvious to many of you, and uh, probably obvious to even more as we work through it. Ezel Blair Jr., David Richmond, Franklin McCain, and Joseph McNeil. These are the names of four students at North Carolina A&T. Four students that the nation took note of on February the 1st, 1960, when they sat at the Whites-only lunch counter at the Woolworth Company store in Greensboro, North Carolina. The young man who quickly became known as the Greensboro Four refused to leave even after they were denied service. Their peaceful and civil act soon sparked similar sit-ins. It started in Nashville and then spread to 55 cities and 13 states. And it proved to be one of the key events that brought about national attention to us as a nation tolerating the sinful and heinous injustices against our own fellow citizens and neighbors because they could be easily targeted by the color of their skin, as if melanin itself had a personality. This small group impacted Woolworths because by the end of the summer, that chain had changed its policy 
In fact, one of the fellows was interviewed several years later in a documentary and said, did you ever go back and eat? He said, yes, only once. I think the reporter got excited thinking there was something he was going to uncover. And he said, really, why that? He said, the food was terrible. (laughs) The Greensboro Four impacted a company, a county, a state, and had national implications. But because of a handful of disciples from the other side of the globe, this motley crew that had been handpicked by God, being about the Father's business, you and I are gathered here on site at the corner of South Boulevard and East Boulevard in Charlotte, North Carolina this morning and online through various means. The disciples doing what God had commanded and equipped them to do and empowering them to do literally touched the world. How can such a small group have such a great impact? How can a small church in 2021 have a great impact and touch the nations? Especially when the gospel is narrow. Now it's open to all, but the door and the way is narrow. Remember, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and No one comes to the Father except by me. We live in this all-inclusive, nothing-exclusive, politically correct society. Remember, the gospel pushes back on all of that. God narrows the entry point to this incredible kingdom through the person who was truly God and truly man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how big can this mission really be if it's really just about this Nazarene from the other side of the globe? Well, before we spend a few minutes on Acts 1-8, let me get you there. Uh, Big fancy word here, right? We preachers like to drop those once in a while to remind you that uh, we paid for some education. (laughs) Um, Missiologically, right? We're going to get there and talk a little bit about what the Bible speaks about this mission, and then we'll talk about the implications for us as a people. Here's a first truth for us to recognize, and it's in the Old and the New Testament. Here it is. You ready? God desires for all to know him. If I were taking notes, you'll have just a a handful of these this morning. They're also published online. They're actually there this week. I talked to the guy that uh, kept forgetting to put them on there and got him in line this week. That's me. Uh, God desires for all to know him. The Bible says, here's some scriptures to write down, Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Isaiah 61, 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up, watch this, before all nations. Romans 8. Now, I know we all love Romans 8.28, but here's verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If I were a young person listening to that, I'd say, that's a lot of words, Pastor. What did you just say? All of creation, every created person that walks the globe, God desires to know him and to bring him glory. 
The Bible also teaches us over the course of many scriptures, I'll share just a few. The second point, it's God's desire for none to be apart from him. Second truth, it's God's desire for none to be apart from him. Old Testament, Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So that's the recipe to get into his presence. Brokenness over our sin and our humanity. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. The Bible says it's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, you know this one probably by heart, the Lord is not slow, I like the King James, it said not slack, I was accused of being a slacker for most of my life, so not slack uh, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient or long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God wants everyone to know him. God doesn't want anyone to be apart from him. Third truth, Jesus Christ is the only hope for mankind. You see, there's a problem. We sin, we rebel. We don't have to be taught how to sin and rebel. We go our own way like sheep, the Bible says. All we like sheep have gone astray. But Jesus Christ came as the sufficient sacrifice, the answer to the problem. The Bible says in John 14, 6, I quoted it earlier, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And here's a scripture. Boy, if you don't have this one marked in your Bible and highlighted to the nines, it should be. It's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, the Bible says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This is Jesus we're talking about, church. He's the head of the body, he, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile or to make right to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is Jesus, our only hope. Jesus Christ, our King of glory. We summarize it this way in the Our Beliefs section. It's a short and condensed kind of statements that come from our doctrinal confession on our website. We say Jesus Christ is true God and true man. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He led a sinless life and died on the cross as the sinner's substitute, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. On the third day, he arose from the dead in the body which had been laid in the tomb. He ascended into heaven where at the right hand of God he is now our high priest and 
advocate. This is our king, the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can the church say amen? What a God. God wants everyone to know him. He doesn't want anyone to be apart from him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, fourth truth that gets us to Acts 1-8. Hashtag longest intro ever. God commands and equips us to publish the gospel. God commands and equips his people to spread the good news. Matthew 28, you know I'm going there, right? You know I'm going there. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. John 20, 21. And he said unto them, I love this word, again. <laughs> so what the first time? Peace be with you. Shalom. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is not a concept unique to Acts or even the Gospels. It's, it's not hidden in the fine print between Revelation and maps in the back of the Bible somewhere. It is in bold face type all throughout Scripture. I gave you an account from Isaiah when we started. God has always been concerned with his people being witnesses to his greatness. Remember in Isaiah 43, he uses the same phrase that shows up in Acts where Jesus speaks. He says, you are my witnesses. This is the great commission, not a subtle suggestion. Now Jesus speaks to his disciples right there and he's speaking to us. Here's the strategy. Let me put the verse back on the screen for you. Acts 1.8. I wonder if, I know we don't do a lot of this, but it'd be good for us to say the word of God together out loud. Can you read this whole verse with me out loud together? Let's read it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now let's get into some application. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father where he's going to be. And then he will send the Holy Spirit. Just three points of application for the text this morning. As we're engaged in our Father's business to the world. You ready? The first one, the Holy Spirit is essential. The Holy Spirit is essential. Many read that text and say the power of the Holy Spirit is essential. We need power, the dunamis, that dynamite explosive power. Paul writes about it and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the explosive experience of God and the salvation Oh, the church, what the church needs now is power. Yes, but that's incomplete. We don't just need any power. We don't need to be 
Uh, No need to succumb to the subjective mire of our own emotions on a whim so that you're defining what power is and that looks different from what you define what power. No, no, no. We need the Holy Spirit, the person of the Trinity. Yes, he lives in the believer, but in the same way that a sponge, if you were to take a sponge and soak it out completely, wring it out completely, and then take that sponge and, and, and place it in a sink full of water, right? There's water in the sponge, and the sponge is in the water. We need both. The Holy Spirit in us, and we need to be in the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is essential. Jesus said in John 14, he said, I'll ask the Father, and, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Church family, if we're going to be about our Father's business at home or abroad, in our neighborhoods or to the nations, we must have the Holy Spirit. He will inform our strategy. He will anoint our tactics. He will lead us and guide us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit, thank God, won't speak of himself or inflate the church or advance a brand. He's going to make Jesus famous. And what the world needs now is Jesus. Same thing it's always needed. The Holy Spirit is essential. You see that in the text. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will, second essential point, be my witnesses. It's a state of being witnesses. To our neighbors and the nations, it's not just one or the other. I'll come back to that. It's both and. It's all of the above. Now, the meaning of this clause, you will be my witnesses, is subject to the question, is this a command or is this a simple statement of fact? We like to say it this way in our Bible study, ready? Is this descriptive of them or prescriptive for us? Well, the beauty of the grammar and the original language here is it's both. He's describing them and he's prescribing it because it's clearly an imperative in the future tense that he's using here. For those three of you that will nerd out on that later in your interlinears. Witness, though, is a key word used in the book of Acts. It's used 29 times as either a verb or a noun. A witness is somebody who tells about and gives an account for what they have seen and heard. When you're a witness on the stand in a court trial, they're not interested in your opinion or your ideas. To quote the detective from Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. That's all we want. What do you know? Not what is your truth. What is the truth? While some of God's people have a calling to the office of evangelist, mentioned in Acts, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians 4, all of God's people are expected to be witnesses. So the work here in Acts 1 is talking about both mission and missionary. Now, again, we live in a society and a culture that we're, we don't like exclusive titles. Everybody wants to have everything. Don't tell me I can't do something. Don't tell me no, right? I, I wanna, I'm a missionary. Yes, I'm a missionary. I'm, well, I, can I gently as pastor and, 
and, and just as elder, push back on the fact that we would maybe describe all of ourselves as missionaries. I do believe we're all on mission. I do believe that. But we would hold to a traditional explanation of what a missionary is and see specific people as assigned and dispatched to this. Can I give it to you? In the traditional sense of the term, missionary has been reserved for those who are called by God to a full-time ministry of the word and prayer. They've crossed geographic and or cultural boundaries. And they've gone to preach the gospel to those areas of the world where Jesus Christ is largely, if not entirely, unknown. You get that? There's consensus on that. That's Grace Covenant's history and legacy. All of us are witnesses. All of us are on mission. All of us do the work of evangelism and do missionary work, as it were, to that end. But there are some that are called and set apart and dispatched by the church to be missionaries, going to a far place geographically or culturally. This is not volunteering for the Peace Corps. It's not community service. It's not a duty where somebody says, well, somebody has to go. I guess I'll do it since nobody's signing up. This is not bringing cups for the potluck kind of work here. This is all in kind of stuff. And here's the deal. It's really not even about, this is, this is difficult. Hang with me for just a moment. It's really not even about getting people saved it's really more about the glory of God on display. Because you can be a faithful missionary, faithfully doing the work of God, and not have much in the natural to show for it. See, it's business thinking of us. We start putting on our business suits and getting in our business conference room when we start talking about the business of missionaries. And we're like, oh, well, this guy doesn't have as much fruit as this guy. No, 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 no. I, we, we don't get to bring those metrics into God's work all the time. Now, I'm all about ripping off the business world to help the church be effective and efficient. But we don't lay down on the altar of efficient to sacrifice effective. So there are faithful men and women of God serving abroad that in the natural have nothing to show for it. You'd have to throw out Jeremiah as a successful prophet if you're just looking at numbers and ticks in the belt. No, no, no. This is a work of God's glory. It's God's glory on display. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which has become required reading for just about any evangelical going in through a missiology course, makes this profound statement, and I love it. It's one of his less verbose, so it's worth putting on the screen for the three of you that have ever read it. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Watch this. Worship is. I don't know if the Scooby-Doo in your head goes, Arr? right, when that happens. But he says missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. I wonder where he got that from. Well, here's a primer for it from Psalm 145. The Bible says, all of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all of your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. It's important for you to understand 
from a missiological perspective that we are motivated by Christ and the glory of God, not just the needs of those we're going to reach. No longer is missions purposed on just getting people saved. There's a higher purpose and motivation. I want to go to these people groups of the world so I can glorify God. It gives us a fresh new motivation for being on mission instead of doing missions. Yes, people are lost. And the Bible clearly says those outside of a living knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ are destined for an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Yes, there are people that need to be redeemed. Yes, but God's glory is still revealed when we are faithful to do what he's called us to do, regardless of how they respond. With the three missionaries that we currently have now as Grace Covenant Church, they will tell you there have been seasons of great fruit and success that look great on a report. And there have been seasons where nothing has changed in the fabric of their faithfulness or their execution of the task where it looks like things aren't going well. We're just laborers in the vineyard. It's the Lord, the Bible says, that brings the harvest. When the church comes to understand that the Holy Spirit is essential, that this is God's work that he is calling us to, for us to be witnesses, the Holy Spirit comes upon followers of Christ. It, the most unlikely people become fountains of power for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit is essential we are to be his witnesses. Third point this morning, the church grows missionally. Missionally. The church growth the Bible talks about is missional growth. The kingdom will spread, will spread by the witness of Jesus' disciples, and it will spread in a way that is measurable and geographic. Measurable and geographic. Now, if we employ those great tools that we have in our tool belt coming to the text for Bible study, we're going to do some observation and application because there's very little interpretation needed here. It's so clear staring us in the face this morning. Now look at the immediate context of Acts 1-8. If you've got your Bibles there, it may not be on the screen. That's fine. Acts 1-8. And when he had said these things, or he says it there, Acts 1-8, you'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you see it, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, when they wrote uttermost parts of the earth there, they certainly had the farthest reach of the Roman Empire at the time. That's what they understood to be that. But I want you to look at that verse very carefully because this is your outline for the book of Acts, actually. It's pretty awesome the way this lays out. Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 and 9. The Gentiles and the ends of the earth, the rest of Acts, chapters 10 through 28 pretty cool. I wish it all laid out that way, every book of the Bible. It doesn't, but that's really neat. When it does that, it's really knit into there. The growth that is talked about here is not only by missionaries. They were the ones who established churches and established those local churches in those areas, but it was perpetrated by God's people just being about their father's business. No matter where we live as Christians, we should begin to understand that our witness at home is essential to our witness abroad. Dr. Oswald Smith had this glorious gem of a quote when he said, the light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. We can't just be thinking about the nations 
and ignore our neighbors. You may give a million dollars a day to global missions, but you could be missing God's will for your life and glorifying God in remarkable ways if you're not stepping across the yard or into the common area of the complex and engaging your neighbors with the glorious gospel. There can be no burden for distant, unreached peoples without a burden for unreached neighbors. Christ demands a world heart. A heart that prays for those at home just as much as it's those being touched by overseas missionaries. Now this looks really different from the church growth uh, movements from our culture that are all attractionally based. There's such an awesome responsibility here, but the responsibility rests on Christ working in us. All we have to do is be his yes men and yes women, his yes boys and yes girls. That's it. The Bible says he is faithful to complete the good work that he began, the mission, Philippians 1.6. The mission of the Lord really is the Lord's mission. So we will reach our neighbors and we will reach the nations. But the last time I checked, especially when we are having a service in January of 2021, all of us can't hop on a plane, <laughs> not that we want to, but all of us can't hop on a plane right now and go and reach all the world. That's not the way this plays out. It didn't play out that way then. There are a handful of folks that we send or we partner with that are going to take the message abroad. You see, to be witnesses, we must have the word of Christ and the work of Christ and the power of Christ. The word is the logos, the work, the ethos, the power, the pathos. All three at work right here in this verse. Can you look with me at the rest of this text? I don't have anything to teach there, just to make an observation. Verses 9 through 11. Right after he says this, drops this major missional bomb on him, what does he do? When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said something. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Can I stop for a moment and just say, like all the little sarcasm flags, I should probably step here, all the little sarcasm flags in my brain go off and go like, because Jesus just went up in a cloud. That's why we're standing here looking. I don't know what the time span is here, right? I don't know if as soon as Jesus get up, they're going, what are you doing? Let's go, get on with it. Like a coach saying, let's get after it. <laughs> but he says, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. That's an interesting statement too. Why are you standing here gazing? He's coming back just like he went. Again, sorry, just gonna take you where my brain is. I'd be going, well, that's a reason for me to stand here, isn't it? Because he just left through a cloud and you said he's coming back. But the work for us is not to live dreamy-eyed, just thinking of a distant land. The work for us is to live smitten by this Nazarene from the other side of the globe about our Father's business. We don't fix our eyes on the mission. We fix our eyes on Jesus. 
To be a witness for Christ is to bring a message that is of marvel simplicity. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He died to pay for our sins and he was resurrected. Now he's exalted in heaven. And he calls us to believe in him so that we can receive the forgiveness of sins. Good news. Great news. Our current Grace Covenant missionaries weren't just mapping out strategic ventures and communication endeavors. They were empowered by the Spirit, sent by the church, and they've gone on to glorify the Lord. For those of us who've been to Jesus and know Him as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us we have everything we need to be witnesses, effective witnesses, to be about His business in the world. Christ is our motivation to reach our neighbors. Christ is our motivation in our communities. Christ is our motivation with our causes that we serve. Christ is our motivation to spread his flame to the nations. He is our all in all. What an adventure. What a life. A small group of people get to touch the nations because we do it God's way. Would you stay seated for just a moment? Musicians, just hold up for a minute. Let's bow our heads and pray and respond to the text. Then we're going to have a special moment of prayer for our Grace Covenant missionaries. Just before we do that, does that describe you? Are you in Christ? In order for the church to grow missionally, we need to be witnesses. In order for us to be witnesses, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to be His. Are you His this morning, watching online? I think about you faithfully tuning in week after week, some of you on a phone, a small device, a tablet, a laptop, some of you watching on a TV with a service you have. I think about those who gather week after week in these pews. And I just want to ask the question one more time. Are you his? Is Christ yours? Father, I pray that you would burn in our hearts this morning conviction of sin, conversion of the sinner, and the empowerment we need to be about your business your way. We love you. We bless you. We need you, God. Lord, if there's somebody watching from a distance that's not on sight, if this is the moment for them, God, I pray that they would be drawn to you and that they would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in you, God. They'd let us know, maybe even on the chat there, just saying, hey, I need prayer. I, I need to know the Lord or emailing, I don't, I don't care how they get in touch with us, Lord, just that we can follow up with them and shepherd them toward a Savior. Father, for those in this pew this morning, there's somebody nearby them. They don't have to come their pastor, although I'd love to have the conversation with them. They could probably talk to somebody that's just one or two degrees away from them and say, I need, I need the Lord. Oh, may today be the day of salvation for many, Lord, in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.